Some of you are like, that's in the Bible? You should read it. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Amen. A mind full of someone else. The reason that I called this sermon a mind full of someone else is because that is an attribute of God, but it's also an attribute of a mother. It's a reflection of God that we see in moms. Because God, through Scripture, reveals Himself as one who always has a mind full of someone else. And I remembered how a couple of years ago I was reading a scientific study about the changes that happen during pregnancy to a woman's brain. And they've studied uh, that the brain alters when a woman becomes pregnant for the first time. And one of the things that they found was that the empathy-related regions of the brain grow during pregnancy. And that's just one way that God's signaling to us that there is... Something happening. There's a change. There's, you're you're going to need something new that you haven't needed before. One of my favorite quotes about motherhood is this. You can get your listening guide out if you have it. This is a good reminder to us this morning as we start. Becoming a mother is like discovering the existence of a strange new room in the house where you already live. You think about that and you think about how you don't have to be a mom to understand that. You just have to have a mom to understand that. Or to know a mom to understand that. All right, let's read Luke chapter 7. Then we'll pray and we'll see what God has to say to us this morning. Luke 7, beginning in verse 11. Now it happened. The day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still and said, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he was who was dead, sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. And the report about him went throughout all Judea. And all the surrounding region. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we read this little story about a lady that we don't know her name, that's just nestled in your gospel, that you put here for us to to know something about you. Lord, help us this morning not to just see details, but to see a person, to see you, to receive what it is you have to say to us. 
We thank you this morning for our moms. We thank you for the legacy of those who have been faithful and good moms. We thank you for those who are yet to be moms, that you're preparing to be moms. We thank you for those who have stood in the gap and been moms to us when there was no other. We thank you that we serve a God who continuously had a mind full of someone else. We are grateful this morning to know you, but mostly to be known by you. Will you speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we think about these details, I want you to realize that in the economy of God, there's, there's all of us in here would fall into one of two categories. Now, there's a lot of ways I could illustrate this. Like we would all fall into the category of wheat or tares or sheep or goats or lost or saved. But another way that we would be divided into two categories is as we come in here this morning, we're either those in need of compassion or we're those who are called to be giving compassion. Because as we walk through this life with Christ, we're either, we find ourselves in seasons where we need compassion. We find ourselves in difficult times and in in trials where uh, it feels too much to bear even sometimes and we need those around us to be compassionate to us but when we're not in the bottom of the valley we need to be mindful of those around us who are so that we can give the compassion that we need to receive when we are where they are because the truth of the matter is is that that is the course of this life Jesus didn't come to take our problems away he said in this life you're going to have tribulation but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world you see that the tension between those two things we're going to have trouble but he's overcome the world and so we're in need of compassion or we're needing to give compassion so I want you to see some things about Jesus this morning first of all that he's deliberate That he is very deliberate. What Jesus does, he does intentionally. He does with purpose. He does with precision. But as you're reading the Bible, if you're not careful, it just seems that there are these things happening. That we're reading the record of some random course of events. See, when the Bible says in verse 11, now it happened the day after that he went to this city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. What the Bible's telling us is is that, well, the day after what? Well, Jesus had been performing miracles in Capernaum, his home base, his adopted hometown. That's where he had been. And so he had been performing miracles there. And large crowds of people had surrounded him. And here's what we know. We know that this little city, Nain, is sort of the middle of nowhere. It's podunk nowhere no there's no there's nothing big there there's just a a small town but it's about 25 miles to the south of Capernaum and we know by the events that are going to unfold in the story that it's late in the day when he arrives at Nain it's in the early evening maybe 6 6 30 in the evening and so there's been a long walk there's been a long journey there's been a lot of people they're, they're very excited about the things they've seen Jesus do, 
And they're very excited about the things they're hoping that he's going to continue to do. And so they followed him on this 25-mile journey. But by the time they get to Nain, listen, the, the shadows are long and their feet are weary. And they're tired. And this big crowd, probably a thousand or so people, is you know, swarmed around him as they're moving. Look at verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city... Behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Now this tells us a lot of things, because first of all, a funeral wouldn't wouldn't start until about six in the evening. It wouldn't start until it cooled down. It wouldn't start until people were in from the fields and done with their work for the day. Because everyone in this little town of Nain would have participated in this funeral. Because it was a small town and this was a big deal. And so all the people would have come home, got cleaned up after work, and they would have all participated in this sort of procession as they were walking out of the town, uh, out to the outskirts of town where they would have found a burial plot. Now this woman, this single parent... She was raising her son as a widow. It's a difficult thing to be a single mom. I was raised by a single mom. God bless you this morning if you're a single mom. It's very hard to be two parents by yourself. But in this culture, it was excruciatingly difficult. In this culture, women already had a hard time. They didn't have any rights. And, you know, the only thing that a a woman would have, the highest honor for a woman in this culture would be to bear a son. Her greatest source of security or maybe her only source of security and safety would be her husband or the presence of her son. Now this woman has lost both. Her son has perished. And so it's leaving a lot of questions, no doubt, in her mind. You have to try to imagine what is she thinking as this day is unfolding. You know, through all the funerals that I've conducted, for all of you that have lost someone very close to you and been through that process, here's what you already know. You don't remember many details about the funeral. When you lose a spouse or a child, you don't remember much about that day it's just a blur because you're so emotionally overwhelmed and overloaded you don't really remember who was there and what was said and just little bits and pieces and then over the months maybe even years that follow then all these little memories of that day start coming back to you but you can imagine in her overwhelmed state what she's thinking She's thinking, you know, well, in order for me to live every day, somebody's got to get up and chop wood. In order for me to be warm in the winter, I'm going to have to have wood. Who's going to cut that wood? Who's going to slaughter an animal so that I have food to eat? Who's going to tend to the animal so that I have food to eat? Who's going to protect me from those who seek to take advantage of me? 
in a time and a place where there's no grocery stores, there's no government assistance, there's no 911 or police force, there's no, there's no mechanism of protection. You're just on your own. And so everything that she would have relied upon is now gone. And there she is in this moment, surrounded by all of these people, no doubt professional mourners. There were people wailing and all sorts of commotion going on. This large crowd is with her. And here's what I imagine. I imagine her amongst a large crowd of people feeling very alone. Sometimes we can be surrounded by people and yet we feel completely isolated. See, in this culture, the Jews believed that when a family member died, when a woman was left as a widow, especially if you lost a child, it was because of your sin. Now, as hard as it is to imagine losing a child. Imagine if everyone you knew and everyone around you was under the assumption that the reason that this had happened, the reason that this unfortunate circumstance had befallen you is because God's punishing you for something that you had done. So on top of the grief and the pain, there's now guilt and shame. And you see, because they believed that this would have been because of her sin, she would have been in front. So as the crowd of people is marching out, and as the, uh, there's men behind her holding some uh, wooden beams with a flat basket with his lifeless body laid on top of it. She was out front. She was leading because it was a symbol of her bearing the guilt and the shame of what had happened. There's lots of people making lots of noise, creating lots of commotion, but in the depths of her spirit, she knows that tomorrow she's going to be alone. She's going to be vulnerable. That there is a massive void left in her life. But Jesus is on the scene, and the second thing we see is that he is compassionate. And the word compassion is so insufficient in the English language. This word in the Greek is the strongest possible word to describe what we would maybe use the term heartbreak for. So maybe you would, you, you, we might say today that for this word, if we were translating it into our modern vernacular, we might say that his heart was shattered. See in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion or his heart was shattered. He was moved into the depth of who he was. 
He had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Now, this seems like a strange thing to say. But Jesus isn't correcting her. He's not scolding her for being sad. He's not telling her that it's inappropriate for her to be crying. It's nothing like that. He's comforting her. He's saying, you don't need to weep anymore because I am here. Because my presence has now arrived on the scene. See, I want you to look closely at verse 13. The Bible says the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. Now this is important because as these two crowds are, are colliding, Jesus is coming in, into the gate of the city with a thousand people around him, and the entire city is in the procession leaving. And so these two things are coming together, and, and, and Jesus doesn't see the crowd. He doesn't see the lifeless body of the Son. No, what he sees is her. In all the confusion of the collision of all these people, Jesus sees one thing and one thing only. His eyes are fixed. His mind is full of someone else. He sees her. You see, when you read the Bible, compassion is the emotion most often associated with Jesus. More than any other emotion, it is compassion that is listed time and time again. Now think about how in our world and in our time that can be missed. This idea that his heart might be shattered by seeing something because what, what man has done is man has created religion. Because religion is convenient. We've created systems by which a person can worship God, a person can know God without it becoming too intrusive, without it becoming too uh, messy, without it being too inconvenient, too hard, too whatever it is. And so religious structures exist all over where you can just go through a set of motions And your heart is never shattered for anybody else. Your heart is just full of yourself. And you're just doing what you need to do to make sure that you're okay. Now think think about this. See, what religion tries to do is make Jesus easy. Just do this. Just do that. Just check the boxes. But the Bible makes Jesus life-changing. Compassion is the emotion most associated with Jesus. And when you look at religion, when you look at all of the religious structures that have been created by man over the centuries and all of the ones that exist today, here's what it does. Religion makes it, makes it so that You can pray for hurting people, but not make it your business. 
It's what religious people do. Oh, it's terrible. We should pray for him. Yeah, we should. Is that all we should do? Is that compassion? Is that what you do when your heart is shattered? Or is that what you do when you... See, religion creates this environment where we do good when we feel pity. Pity is not compassion. Jesus didn't feel pity for her. See, the real Jesus, he's going he's gonna to mess with our heart. He's going to create something inside of us that is going to feel something that we're not used to feeling. And our heart will be shattered by situations and circumstances and we're going to act on the compassion that we feel because we're going to be prompted by the Spirit of God within us. That's what happens in relationship as opposed to religion. See, when, this, when these two crowds are colliding, Believe me, I've spent a lot of time imagining that I was in this moment. Jesus is probably, no doubt, in the midst of a conversation because there was never a peaceful moment for him unless he got up before the sun and got off by himself. And so there was just a long line of people constantly barraging him with questions and problems and wanting to know this and wanting him to know that. And so I imagine as Jesus is approaching... They don't know where they're going or why they're going there. They're all just following him. And then in mid-sentence, he stops. And he's quiet. And he's transfixed as he looks at this widow. Because here is the one for whom he has come. You see, Jesus knows what she's going through. Jesus understands her pain he understands all of the the things that are going on inside of her what he does is he he enters her world feeling what it's like to be in her place he doesn't play it safe he goes way beyond pity see there's no doubt there's People with Jesus, and they see her, and they feel sorry for her. They feel sad for her. Jesus says, do not weep. You see, not just pity, but he, he, he goes up to her, and he speaks words to her. He says something to her. See, so many times we hear about somebody who's hurting or we see a situation or, or whatever it is comes into our realm of understanding and we think, what a terrible situation. And who are we talking to? Ourselves. Or maybe the people around us. But we're not saying that to the person. So many times we don't go to the person. We don't understand something. Jesus has walked 25 miles to speak these words to her. He hasn't come for anyone else. 
Just her. He feels her anguish, but here's the thing. He's not lost in it. He feels it, but he's not lost in it. He feels it enough to be moved by it and to be prompted by it, but he doesn't, he's not lost in it because what happens is, see, I see people sometimes that, and this is just a, an indication of extreme dysfunction, by the way, just letting you know that. Let's just have a little Dr. Phil moment. When you encounter deeply disturbing things, you're paralyzed by them. That's not healthy. Jesus isn't paralyzed by it. He feels it. He's aware of it, but he's not lost in it. Now, I imagine as these two crowds are, are, are coming together, well, respect for the dead, no doubt, would have the right of way. The crowd that's following Jesus would separate one side to the left, one side to the right. You would do the same thing as, boy, here's a moment. We're supposed to do when a funeral procession is driving down the road, amen? That's lost in our culture for sure. So the crowd separates, allows the funeral procession to start moving through, and then we'll see this characteristic of Jesus who is preeminent. He's preeminent. What the Bible means when the Bible says Jesus is preeminent, it means that He is over. It, it means that he is superior to. So, for example, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that all that he's created, that all that he is over and has authority over, he's, he's in a position of preeminence over that. And we see this in verse 14 because he tells the woman... These words of comfort. And then the Bible says he came and he touched the open coffin. Which all their coffins would have been open, but just for our understanding. And those who carried him stood still. Meaning, listen, here's how this went down. They froze in their tracks. Because they could not believe what had just happened. At this moment, at verse 14, Jesus stops this entire funeral procession dead in its tracks. He quietly and deliberately walks over and touches the coffin. Now, if you read Numbers chapter 19, you will know, I think it's verse 11 and following, you will know that a Jew cannot, under any circumstances, touch a dead body. And doing so would make you unclean. And then there's a whole list of uh, provisions that you would have to go through to cleanse yourself of what has just happened. And if you don't immediately go through these provisions, 
what the law says in the Old Testament is that you would be cast out. Jesus walks right over. And he touches that, that coffin. There is extreme tension in this moment. Everyone would be frozen in astonishment. Everyone with Jesus, everyone in the funeral procession, nobody is moving. Nobody can believe what's just happened. And you know, there's other times where Jesus encounters great need and the Bible says he had compassion. It uses this same word. I'll give you some examples in Matthew chapter 20. Behold, two blind men sitting by the road. They heard that Jesus was passing by and they started crying out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Jesus had compassion on them. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Now there was a leper who came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, can you make me clean? And then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. You see what's the commonality in all of these other examples? Where the Bible says Jesus meets great need and has compassion, in every one of these examples, the Bible says he touched. Every time. He touched. He touched the leper. He touched the blind men. He touched. Now, it should tell us something about compassion. Compassion touches people. Compassion is not... Uh, relegated to some cultural norm or some taboo or some compassion moves you beyond the, this idea that we would, we're more concerned about trying to keep ourselves safe or to protect ourselves or whatever the case may be. He touches. And it's a shocking moment. And all eyes are focused on Jesus. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's saying anything. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. It's almost, it just seems almost wrong for that sentence to just be sort of right there between two other sentences. It just seems like there should be a blank space above and below that statement. Or at least, Selah. Young man, I say to you, arise. What if you were her? What if you were this woman? You see this man. You see this crowd with him. You know he's a rabbi. You know you can put some of these pieces together. But you're still in astonishment at the fact that he touched the coffin. But when he speaks these words, young man, I say to you, arise. In that millisecond. 
not knowing what's about to happen. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. A once dead man obeys Jesus. He sits up and he starts talking. The crowd is is awestruck. There's all, a lot of times when you're reading the scripture where we don't get certain details. So we, we get some details, but we don't get all the details. And we have to paint the picture in our own mind. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what he said. That's what I want to know. What did he say when he sat up? I imagine he sat up and he looked at his mom and he said, what's wrong? Why are you dressed this way? Why are you crying? What happened? He's trying to sort all this out. Of course, he no doubt realized when he looked down that there were men carrying him and that he was essentially in a coffin, we would call it. I thought about all of this. I thought about the funeral director. When he got home at the end of the day and his wife said, Honey, how was work today? What did he say? The boy sits up and starts, the young man starts talking. It makes me think about compassion. It makes me think about how do we respond to the things that we see around us. The voices that we allow into our head that try to mitigate the situation, that try to, you know, uh, convince us that oh, what we're feeling is, is unnecessary or we're blowing it out of proportion or maybe the need is not that great or that, yes, it's bad, but there's certainly other people doing this or that or whatever the case may be. And all of it is just ignoring the central truth of the fact that Saved people are made to feel compassion by the God who made them. And so when your heart is shattered by something, you shouldn't be having a conversation with yourself about what you're going to do. You should just acknowledge the fact that it's the God who made you that caused you to be shattered and obey it. Right? Yes. Just obey it. Some things about responses 
If we can help someone but don't take the time to look at the person and feel what he or she is feeling, our love is cold. You see, one of the mistakes that we can make is just feel compassion and then just, you know, do something so that we can get rid of it, get rid of the feeling. You know, just drop something off or give something or whatever. But you, you can't skip any of the steps. See, remember, Jesus first saw her. He felt what she feels. His response, his actions were based on him seeing her and feeling the things that she's feeling. But then on the other side, if we, if we look and feel but don't do what we can to help, then our love is cheap. It's cheap. See, Jesus' love does both. Because his mind is full of someone else. You have to remember, I've done a lot of hiking in my life. Some of you have done a lot of hiking in your life, and so you would know. First of all, 25 miles is a really long way to go. It's a really long way. On flat ground, it's a really long way to go on foot. Now, I know some Christians in Brazil who walk barefooted on dirt roads to go to work and come to church in the rain. They'll go 25 miles, no problem. But it's taken a lifetime to build that stamina to be able to do that. But here's the point I'm making is that on this 25-mile journey of all the questions people are asking of Jesus and all the things that they're wanting of him and the constant barrage of things, he's no doubt answering their questions and being kind to them and responding to them. But the whole time, what is his mind on? He's thinking of someone else. He's thinking of this lady. He's thinking of this woman. All these things are swirling around, and he's dealing with them. He's not ignoring them, but he's focused on this situation at hand. And it's apparent by the what happens when he sees her and the way he responds to her, and he, he touches the casket, and he speaks to her in kindness. So by now, I imagine the two crowds are fully merged together, and it's just one enormous mass of people. Because, see, you, you had a group of mourners and a group of uh, celebrators, but now it's all one group of just awestruck amazement. And there's buzz. There's excitement, like electricity flowing through this crowd. And, he, and here's what you have to understand is that in this moment... Every eye is on Jesus, but his eye is on the widow. And think about this. In this moment of incredible opportunity, the movies that will be made of this moment, the book deals, the fame, the, the, the accolades, the the prestige, all of the things that could come out of this moment to the one who, who had accomplished this great feat. And he takes this woman, her son by the hand, and he, 
helps him off the basket and walks him over to his mother. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about how he could benefit from all this attention. He doesn't even take this moment to, 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 now that I have everyone's attention, let me teach you this truth or let me, let me tell you this thing. Mm-mm. He's completely focused. He's not at all distracted by his own miracle. He's focused on her. And you see, he cares for both the son's physical need and the mom's emotional need. He brings... Now, now I want you to think this through. I imagine that you imagine if you were in this moment and Jesus told your son to rise up, and he did, the mom would just run over there and tackle the son, wouldn't she? Right? Why is the mom not over there? Why does Jesus take the son down and walk the son to the mom? The mom's over here. The son's over here. What would keep a mom away from her once dead son who's now alive? Shock. She's in shock. She was emotionally and physically depleted before this event even occurred. She's probably just standing there motionless with her mouth open and her eyes as wide as they can go trying to sort out, is this actually happening right now? And Jesus brings him over to say, this is real. This is your boy. This is your son. He's alive. You can feel him. You can touch him. You can hug him. You can hold him. She's standing there. I mean, her, her eyes are still filled with tears. Her, her cheeks are still swollen from crying and in that very instant she's holding her son who is alive at his funeral and so what Jesus does is he shows us a blueprint for how to love you see he's showing us how he loves us this is how he loved you If you know him and he knows you, this is how he loved you. This is how we are now to love others. We're to live our lives like a mom. Our minds should be filled with somebody else, not ourselves. We should go through life aware, looking to see who's hurting, who's broken, who's shattered. And when our heart shatters, when we feel 
compassion, we should know immediately that that's God. See, we look and then we feel and then we, we act, we help, we respond, we move. See, as his people, Jesus calls his followers to live at the intersection of people's needs and our God-given ability to meet those needs. I'm always amazed at how people find creative ways to stay sanitized, to keep clear of the shrapnel. Because you feel that somehow you're limited in your capacity. But I want you to think about a couple things and then we'll be done. I want you to first think about this. Do you think that the God who made you, the God who gives compassion, the one who's the source of compassion, do you think that he gives you, I'm not talking about us, I'm talking about you individually, me and you as individual people, do you think he gives us compassion for situations that we don't have the resources to minister in? Do you think he's unaware of what you have access to? You, don't, you think God doesn't know what your bank account is? You don't think God knows what your emotional reservoir is? You think God doesn't know what's in your pantry? You don't think he knows what's in your gas tank? You don't think he knows? He knows everything about you. And so when God gives you compassion, he's given you compassion based on what you possess. But the flip side of that is, is what we possess has been given to us to steward for the care of those around us. How many times do we manage the resources we have access to with a mind full of ourselves? Someone else. is someone else. So if you're here this morning, this is what I want you to understand, is that if you're saved... Do you know how that happened? It happened because God came for you. See, wherever that was and whenever that was, whenever that moment was for you, God came for you. He came for you. Whatever you heard, whatever you were reading, whatever circumstance, whatever caused the Word of God to come alive in you, God did that in you specifically. That, see, that didn't surprise Him. God didn't just throw it out there across a, a room full of people just trying to see, well, I wonder where it'll take or where it won't take. He knew 
He knew two years, five years, two months, three days. He knew that night before you went to bed. The next day he knew that was going to happen. He, his eyes were on you. He watched you wake up. He watched you drink your coffee. He knew that was the last cup of coffee you were ever going to drink lost. He knew that was the last time you were going to drive to church lost. Or it was the first time you were going to drive to church at all. But he knew all that. He came looking for you that day. And he's always on the lookout for those whom he's desiring to save. For those whose, whose heart will be open and receptive to him. You see, in verse 16, the fear of the Lord comes upon them, and they glorified God. And it's interesting to me, they say that the prophet has risen up among us. And then they say this, God has visited his people. Has God visited you? Have you been visited by God? I mean, really? Have you been visited by God? Has God found you? Was there a day when God was looking for you? He was waiting for you. His eye was on you. It wasn't the best day of your life. Things weren't going better than they'd ever gone before. That's not how that works. We were in a low point, and God knew that. And he had compassion on us. And he saw us. And he felt what we felt. And he moved in our direction. And he called us to himself. And he saved us. That's what he did. He visited us. Has he he visited you? Do you know his voice? Because I want you to know something. He loves you. He loves you. And if you don't know God as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know he sees you this morning. Yeah, you're in a crowd of people, but he sees you. He sees you. And he feels you, and he knows. He knows what you feel, and he knows how you struggle, and he knows how you hurt. And so we're all here this morning, and we're either in need of compassion or we need to give compassion. So I think we should bring those two things together and Redeem them. That's what we should do. So in a couple minutes, I'm going to 